All right, isn't that exciting? All right, Revelation chapter 10. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10, and we'll pray uh, together. Father, we just rejoice in you this morning. Uh, We rejoice in the baptisms that have taken place, this new church plant. We pray for your blessing upon it, a move of your spirit. And as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would move in our hearts as we look and see how your judgment, uh, it's bittersweet. It's sweet because there's forgiveness, but there's a a heaviness uh, with your judgment. We pray that we would hear your heart, Jesus, that we would know you in a greater way. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you guys think of some foods that are bittersweet? How about blackberries? When you eat some blackberries, I grew up in the Northwest. Blackberries grow wild. And some, when they're ripe, it is just sweetness in your mouth. You cannot duplicate that taste of a fresh blackberry. If you haven't had that experience, you haven't lived yet. But also, you can get a blackberry that's not ripe, and man, it's bitter. And you're like, what is wrong with this blackberry? How about dark chocolate? Any dark chocolate lovers out there? Okay, you guys are weird. You're weird. Because there's that bitter sweetness with dark chocolate, but you probably love it. You're like, I get the sweet, and I also get the bitter. Isn't most things that happen in our lives and a lot of news that we get is bittersweet? This, this happened in my life, and there's this aspect of it that's so sweet, and God is moving, and he's good, but there's also this aspect that's so bitter, and it's hard to deal with. And these two chapters of Revelation, it really is bittersweet. John is asked to eat a little book, and he eats this book, and it symbolizes God's judgment, and it's bittersweet. It's sweet to his mouth, but it's bitter to his stomach. It's sweet because there's forgiveness for those who trust in Christ, but it's bitter because those that reject Christ receive God's uh, judgment. If you're new to this study in Revelation, where we're at is God is rejecting, or excuse me, not rejecting, but he is judging a Christ-rejecting world. And it began with seven seal judgments. And then the seven seal judgments moved into the seven trumpet judgments. There's been six trumpet judgments, then there's a pause. And that's why we're at. There's, There's a pause. And this is the time where John is instructed to eat this little book, then there'll be the seventh judgment. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 10. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like the pillars of fire. The rainbow represents that God keeps his promises from the flood. God gave the rainbow to Noah and to his family, And it reminds us that God is faithful to his word. His face was like the sun because the angel's spending time in the presence of God. When you spend time in the presence of God, you radiate his his likeness. His feet are, are like pillars of fire. Speaking of that stability that comes from being in God's presence. That power that comes from being in God's presence. The angel, he had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried out with a loud voice as one as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. 
Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So here's this angel, so large and powerful that he's standing on land and upon the sea, and he's got this book in his hand, and there's seven thunderings. So there's been seven seals, we're in the midst of seven trumpets, and all of a sudden there's these seven thunders. John, as his habit, as God is showing him things in this vision, begins to write down the seven thunders. He sees what these seven thunders thunders are all about. But then, a voice from heaven. God speaks and says, seal up these things. Seal up the seven thunders and don't write them. Of all of the things in the book of Revelation, there's some things that God doesn't want us to know. And sometimes, that's the way it is in life. God gives us so much in his word. His word fills us in on so many things. But there's some things that God chooses not to communicate to us in. There's a mystery in the fact that there's times in our lives that we're not going to know. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a blessing in not knowing. When God chooses to, to not give us the answer on a particular thing, Maybe this morning there's a circumstance, there's a situation, there's questions that you're wrestling through. Maybe you have been for some time and it seems as though that God is not answering that. And maybe he is answering, but his answer is, I'm not going to tell you. Are there any times as a parent with your kids that you felt it was their best interest to not tell them? How do they feel about that? That you're an axe murderer, right? It's like, Dad, why aren't you telling me this? You're, you're the worst person on, on the planet many times. And that can be our attitude towards God is, is God, if you loved me, why wouldn't you, you tell me? Why wouldn't you reveal this to me? But in his love for us, he may be choosing for us to not know. Some of the blessings that come from not knowing is humility. There's a humility in being okay with not knowing. You're God, I'm not. I don't have to know everything. I think many of us have had this experience and journey is the older that we get, the more that we realize we don't know. I know less now than I did when I was 27, when I was, was 24. I knew a lot more about ministry when I was 30 than I do now, right? I've got a lot less figured out because time humbles us. Our own sin humbles us. And, and so when we don't know, it brings us to a place of, of humility. I, I love this quote by L. Morris. It says, let us not proceed as though all has been revealed. Well, let, let's not proceed as though we know everything. So there's a blessing in not knowing. It produces humility. But also one of the blessings that comes from not knowing is trust. Trust the Lord with all of your heart. Proverbs 3, 5, and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. God, I can't figure this out. You've sealed it up. You haven't revealed it, so I I have to trust. And it's one thing to, to trust when God reveals everything, but it's another when he chooses not to. So it grows our trust in the Lord. It grows our faith. But also the blessing in not knowing is to be able to experience a peace that surpasses understanding. God, I, I can't figure this out. 
A plus B plus C should equal D. It just doesn't seem to be working out that way. And Lord, I need your peace that surpasses my understanding that will guard my heart and mind. And God will grant that to us. He graciously gives us that peace that surpasses understanding. Remember, the word of God lasts for all of eternity. So when you get to heaven, ask the Lord, what's the seven thunders all about? Because he sealed it up until that time. Verse 5, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. This emphasis on God's character as the creator. It's emphasized throughout the book of Revelation. He's the one who's created all things. He's created the heavens. He's created the earth and everything that's in the earth. And now's the time for God's righteous judgment, for him to to make things right. No more delay, no more pause in his judgment. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, the seventh uh, trumpet, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to the servants, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So with this seventh trumpet that sounded, the mystery of God is going to be completed, this mystery that he communicated to the prophets. The word mystery in the Bible is not something that's beyond knowing, but God revealing to us at the perfect time. There's several places where God talks about the mystery of God. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, this is the mystery of godliness, then goes on to describe the gospel, that Jesus came in human flesh. That's a mystery. How could God come in human flesh, be born in in Bethlehem? The creator is dependent upon his creation, Mary. Jesus was an infant, was, was seen by angels, was crucified, risen again, ascended to be with the Father. This is, this is the mystery of God. It's not beyond knowing, but there's this aspect of, God, why would you love us enough to send your Son to come in human flesh to die upon the cross? In Colossians chapter 1, it says the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? That the creator of the universe would also live in our hearts. If you're a believer, Jesus lives in you. Jesus lives in me. It's a mystery of God. And here, the mystery of God is completed, and it really speaks of God's plan for humanity for all time. God completing all things, sent his son, died upon the cross, rose again, living in our hearts where he's going to return and rule and reign over the affairs of men. In verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Can you imagine your John in this vision, this big angel standing on earth and on the sea? And God's like, go get the book out of his hand. Really? Like, I got to go ask him for the book? He seems to be enjoying it. He's, he's got it open. And here's John So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, 
and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So in this vision, he's to take the book and he's to eat it. And as he eats it, he found it first to be sweet to his taste buds. But then as he digested it, it became bitter in his stomach. This little book represents the judgment of God. It it represents what God's doing at this time during the Great Tribulation. And there's an aspect where first the judgment of God is sweet. How so? Because God's making all things right. I mean, do you ever look at this world and go, God, we, we long for you to make things right. We long for you to take your proper place and rule and reign over the nations. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so there's an aspect where, where it's sweet. Even more so, there's an aspect where God's judgment is sweet because it causes us to realize Jesus took the punishment for us upon the cross. What's represented in the book of Revelation is a small picture of what we deserve apart from Christ. And Jesus was the object of the wrath of the Father upon the cross. I've been listening to an old hymn uh, this week, In Christ Alone. And one of the stanzas of Christ Alone, it says, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God, in helpless babe, this is the gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin of him was laid. Every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live, I live. The wrath of God was satisfied in Christ. And that causes us to have a sweetness of knowing forgiveness. I I hope you know the sweetness of your sins being forgiven by Christ. All of your sins. To taste and see that the Lord is good. But the bitter aspect of God's judgment is for those that have rejected Christ, that choose to have a hard heart towards Christ, don't see their their need for him. As we read the book of Revelations, it's heavy because people are experiencing God's wrath and experiencing God's judgment. It's humbling to think about someone not knowing Christ and rejecting Christ through the course of, of their lifetime and being eternally separated from God. And as we think of the message of God and and the judgment of God and digest the word of God, there should always be that sweetness. And there should always be that bitterness in our stomachs as well for those that don't know Christ as their Savior, to see the Lord do a work in their heart and life. Also, I believe God is speaking to us through this vision that John has to, to eat the book. This is the book we're to eat right here. This is the book that God has given us. God gave John this little book to eat. We got this big book to eat. 66 books that God has given to us through the inspiration of the Spirit. And the Word of God is is so powerful. And God wants to put His Word inside of us. The picture here of, of eating the Word of God is the Word of God then becomes in us. You know, this morning I had my breakfast, my four eggs, one cup of blueberries, and a piece of whole wheat toast. Delicious, right? I hate to tell you, it's in me right now, digesting. You're never going to see me the same, but that, that's what's happening to those blueberries and eggs and, and toast. And God wants his word to actually go inside of us, not enough for us to simply be around the word of God. Maybe you've never read God's word before, 
Maybe you don't own a Bible. We've got Bibles for you at the door. We'd love to, to give you one and seems super intimidating. I know it's overwhelming. Where do you start? In the front of the Bible, there's a table of contents. Look up the book of Mark. The book of Mark is a, is a great book to start with that talks about the life of Jesus. The Bible's divided up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The old is leading up to the life of Christ. The new begins the, the life of Christ. I would recommend starting with the New Testament. If you start with Leviticus, it's going to be a tough journey. It's a, it's a book in the Old Testament about sacrificial official law. Begin to pray before you read, God, would you help me to understand the word of God? Begin to underline verses that make sense, put question marks by verses that don't make sense. Maybe pick up a journal and begin to, to write verses that stand out to, to meditate upon. Uh, for us as believers that have spent time in the word of God, that you have a habit of being in God's word, is continue in the word of God. There's a fight to, to stay in God's word, to have God's word be active in our lives. For me, it seems like I go through different stages or phases with reading God's word. Sometimes reading God's word for me is just absolute delight. I wake up in the morning and I feel like God's just got a feast for me and my soul is ready to be in God's word. There's other times when it comes to reading the word where it feels like duty. It feels like I've got to do this. This is just something that I have to do and I'm really wrestling with myself wrestling with my flesh to, to get in the word of God. And then the third phase is this one of discipline. I'm somewhere in between duty and delight. It's, it's not delight and it's not duty, but it's, it's discipline. And then before you know it, after a season of discipline, the delight will come back. <laughs> and then after the delight, it'll go back to duty. And then I always fight in the midst of those seasons is distraction. When I get too busy, when I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, I'm reading God's word, but it goes into Charlie Brown mode. Wah, 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 wah. I, I'm not listening. I'm challenged by what Jesus says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So, so I'm going through the outward motions, but I'm not listening to the word of God. I believe in the times that we live in for all practical purposes, this is the most important thing for us as believers is to be spending time in the word of God in a response to his love for us. Not legalism, not I've got to be in God's word for God to love me, but because he loves me, because he died for my sins, because he loves me enough to, to communicate truth on this world in my life, I'm going to spend time in God's word. It can be really overwhelming to not have a plan. You, you open up your Bible and you're like, where do I start? So prayerfully pick a plan. Maybe read Psalms and Proverbs. Maybe read, read the Gospels. There's some plans online that you can download. But uh, keep that relationship as the emphasis. Lord, I'm desiring to, to spend time with you in your word. But it's so important for us to digest the, the word of God. Let's look at chapter 11, one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John, it's time to get back to work. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. 
So in this vision, John's told to measure the temple. Now currently, there's no temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. But part of the fulfilled prophecy that will happen in the future is there will be a temple that will be built. And that's what John is measuring. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. So in this future temple, the outer court is not to be measured because it's given over to the Gentiles. It's different than the temples in the past. So this brings about a lot of questions and speculations. Well, what does it mean that this outer court is given to the Gentiles? Most of you are aware on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that the Dome of the Rock sits. The the Muslims purposely built the Dome of the Rock there, knowing that the Temple Mount is so important to uh, the Jewish people. And from their estimates at the time, they felt that the Dome of the Rock was in the Holy of Holies, that, that exact spot. But there's some archaeologists that think, no, the the Holy of Holies was actually just a little bit a ways away from the Dome of the Rock. So possibly this new temple will be built and the Dome of the Rock still sits there and that's where the court of the Gentiles is. We don't know. That could be one way that that scenario plays out. But ultimately, somehow that's going to be solved. Probably the most contested piece of real estate in the world is the Temple Mount. You want to start a big conflict? Try to build the temple on the Temple Mount. And the nation of Israel is not going to build the temple anywhere. I know this may surprise some, but they're not going to build it in Orlando next to Disney World. It's going to be on the, the Temple Mount. So we'll, we see, we'll see how that plays out. There's a group in Jerusalem called Temple Institute where they're making a lot of the practical preparations to have all of the articles ready that are necessary for the temple. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. This is just under three and a half years. Uh, The Gentiles tread on the holy city Jerusalem for three and a half years. God raises up two witnesses during this time, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, some guys walking around in sackcloth, they're speaking the word of God for three and a half years. I love this section about the two witnesses because it's a dark time spiritually. Last week we saw the bottomless pit was opened up. There's a lot of demonic activity. There's a lot of hardship. But yet God is able to get the attention of the whole world with two witnesses. And we live in interesting and dark spiritual times, but God is good at getting the attention of the world and getting his name out, his character and nature out. He's not limited. One person with God is a majority. Why? Because God by himself is a majority. (laughs) He didn't need anybody, right? And so when there's one or two that says, God, I'm available to you, I'm ready to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. God does a great work. So we can be encouraged this morning by what God does with these two witnesses. This is a really important part of their lives and their ministry is verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So these two witnesses are symbolized as two olive trees and two lampstands. Please write down Zechariah chapter 4, 
come join us on Wednesday night because we're going to go in depth on this on, on Wednesday night. But in Zechariah chapter 4, there's also two olive trees and lampstands, and there's a pipe going from the olive trees to fuel the lampstands. It's this continual flow of olive oil, and God says in Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God was doing a work there in Zechariah through Zerubbabel that was going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And these two witnesses are lampstands because they're filled with the Spirit of God. And we can't be witnesses in this dark world apart from the Holy Spirit. It's not by power. It's not by might. It's by the Holy Spirit. It's not by our strength. It's not by our strategy. It's not by our prayer life. It's by the power of the the Holy Spirit. Here's a bit more about their ministry. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in the same manner. So the world's coming against these two witnesses, but as people tried to kill them, then they were able to breathe out fire. This reminds us of the ministry of Elijah in First and Second Kings, calling down fire from heaven. In verse 6, these have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. Elijah prayed and called for a drought. Moses prayed and there was plagues upon Egypt. So their ministry is like Moses and Elijah. And some speculate that this is maybe Moses and Elijah coming down from heaven and taking a visit in the Great Tribulation. There's a few reasons why. One is they showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah did. The other is Elijah never died. God took him up in a chariot of fire. That would be a great way to die, wouldn't it? I guess you're not dying. That's what's beautiful about it. Moses, he died, but God buried him. Nobody knows where he is buried. Another prophecy that plays into this is Malachi 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it could be God sends Moses and Elijah, literally allowing them to to come from heaven. But it may not be. God doesn't say. We don't want to put words in God's mouth. God doesn't give us their name for a purpose because it's not about the two witnesses. Amen? It's about God's power to work through two individuals. In verse 7, when they finish their testimony, so God's time is done, that three and a half years, the, the ten, testimony's finished. At some point, our testimony is finished. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. In Revelation 9, verse 11, in last week's study, we see the beast in the bottomless pit, Abidon, meaning destruction, the leader of the bottomless pit. This is probably Satan himself coming out of the bottomless pit, and he's able to kill the two witnesses. Satan thinking that he's got a great victory here. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So they just leave the bodies in the street for three and a half days. No respect, no courtesy to even bury them. God calls out the spiritual condition 
of Jerusalem and says it's like Sodom in Egypt. What's interesting about Jerusalem, even at this time, is it's mainly atheists or orthodox. Atheists not believing in God at all, and the orthodox Jews denying that Jesus is the Messiah and still looking for the Messiah to come. In verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to put into graves. This gets the intention of the whole entire world. It says peoples, tribes, tongues, nations will see their bodies for these three and a half days. There would be a time in the not too distant past where it'd be hard for the world to tune in to watch these bodies rot for three and a half days. But now the world is able to connect to the internet. I remember going to Uganda, and this was a few years ago now, but being amazed at their cell service. I have terrible cell service here in the Springs. I don't get good service in my office. I don't get good service in my house. So I'm always walking out in the foyer to talk on the phone, going out into the driveway to talk on the phone. Oh, my life is so tough, isn't it? But when I go to Uganda, I get great cell service. I'm not even kidding. Like, it's like five bars everywhere I go. And they actually have better cell technology than we have here in the United States. And you'll be out in the village, out in the bush, talking with people. Hey, hey, wait a second, let me get this. And they literally have cell phones. And that's even how they do their, their business transaction. And the world is online. And every year, the world is online. Live streaming has become even a bigger deal. I mean, you can personally live stream from your phone. You can go to it. It doesn't cost you any money. And you can live stream whatever you're doing, right? And so this is going to be live streamed and the world is, is tuning in. And I remember the days of newspapers, and I'm not that old, trust me. Well, maybe I am, right? But we get a newspaper, check this out, delivered to our house every day. And my brother and I would fight over who could get the sports section. And if he got it first, he would read it forever. Like an hour and a half, two hours, just like so smug, like and I'm just dying. But the time that news got printed, it was a few days old, right? It wasn't current, it wasn't what was happening uh, right then. And so this is a fulfillment of prophecy that we see that the nations of the world could tune in on this event. In verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets torment those who dwell on the earth. Donald Barnhouse uh, tells this in his uh, commentary of a Christmas card with Revelations 11.10 on its cover, and it was terribly misquoting the scriptures. This is what the Christmas card uh, said, is those who dwell on the earth will rejoice, making merry and sending gifts to one another. This is not a Christmas greeting. (laughs) But it feels like the world is breaking out into Christmas because these two witnesses have been killed. This shows the hard hearts of the world at this time. God's got a surprise in verse 11. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered in them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. The world's watching, and after three and a half days, God raises them from the dead. 
God gets the final word. Satan thought that he had the victory over Jesus when he was crucified. Jesus rose from the dead. And once again, Jesus, Satan thinks he's got a victory by killing these two witnesses, but God raises them from the dead. And great fear falls on those who are watching. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. So not only did God raise them from the dead, but it was like, All right, come on up to, to heaven. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tent of the city fell. And the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. When Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake. When he rose again, there was an earthquake. And now there's another earthquake in Jerusalem. 7,000 people die, but the rest give glory to God. Part of what God's doing in this tribulation period is waking up the nation of Israel. So far in the book of Revelation, we haven't seen people softening their hearts to, to the Lord. But here there's a softening, right, in Jerusalem where they acknowledge that God is working and they give God glory. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So as the seventh trumpet is sounded, Jesus takes his proper place, and he reigns over the kingdoms of men. Won't this be awesome to see and behold? No more Republican Party, Democrat Party, Independent Party. It'll just be the Jesus Party. Talk about leadership and Christ ruling and reigning over the affairs of men. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. The elders are always worshiping God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. Praising the Lord of Christ taking this place of ruling and reigning. But here's the response of the nations. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. So instead of the nations softening their heart, they get angry. And the time of the dead that should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So two things are happening. There's judgment to those that are rejecting Christ, but there's reward to those that have served Christ. Church, through the lens of eternity, you're never going to regret serving Christ. You're never going to regret love in Christ. We don't always see the reward in this life. You may be stumbled if you're like, I'm serving Christ because I want a better life on the here and now. Jesus said that we are, should expect there'll be tribulation. Paul wrote and said that we will experience persecution to those that live godly in, in Christ Jesus. Where's the reward promised for eternity? And that reward is far better than some kind of earthly reward. But God's not going to shortchange you. He, he sees your labor of love, and he's going to reward you. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. The tabernacle represents the throne room of God, 
And in the temple of God, there's the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. And from the place of the Holy of Holies, God's throne, and there was lightning, noises, thunders, earthquake, and great hail. So God's judgment comes from his very throne. Bittersweet. That's sweet because there's forgiveness. And I want you to hear that this morning. If you have not made a decision of faith to trust Christ as your Savior, there's sweetness. Jesus died for your sins specifically. The Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love towards us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He loves us while we were sinners, while we didn't have a heart for God, while we didn't want anything to do with the Lord. And this morning, as we read God's word, God hopefully is revealing to you his just standard, but also his love. His solution for our sin is his son. He sent his son to die upon the cross for your sins and to rise again. So turn from your sin. Receive that free gift of salvation. Jesus said it best, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You're a whosoever. I'm a whosoever. This invitation to come and believe, it's simple. It's not about going to church. It's not trying to be a good person. It's believing, Jesus, you're the only one that can save me. You died for my sins specifically. You rose again. I'm believing you. And as we sing this last song, if you'd like to make that decision of faith, come. We'll be available here in the front. Just let us know. I'd like to trust Christ for salvation. Online, you can indicate that decision. We have a team that's ready. Go to the chats and the comments and indicate, I'd like to receive Christ as my Savior. And then for those that know Christ as their Savior, is I believe that God wants to do a gospel movement in these times. It's really clear. There's light, there's darkness, and he wants to bring people out of darkness into the light. Your life has purpose. My life has purpose. It's to know Jesus. It's to make him known. It's to be part of this gospel movement. As we get in the word, and hopefully we digest the word of God, we taste and see that God is good. And we go, oh, there's a sweetness with God. But may we also understand that bitterness for those that don't know the Lord. I hope our hearts ache for those that don't know Christ as our Savior. Those loved ones that you're praying for, keep praying for them. Those family members, those friends that don't know the Lord. Hopefully our heart breaks for our city and our community that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. And that's the bitterness aspect. That's that aspect that goes, Lord, I've got a burden for souls. There is that holy burden for souls that the Lord would give us that moves us to to reach out. There's not a lot of love that's happening in the world today. There's not a lot of love that, that's happening in the community today. So what a great opportunity to love in Jesus' name. To really spend time with people, to care for them, to pray for them, to share the gospel with them, and see God be able to rescue out of darkness into light. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your death and resurrection. We need you as our Savior. We thank you that you're the answer for our sins. And God, we desire to see people come to know you. So would you give us a heart for, for those that don't know Jesus? 
For those that are wrestling this morning with a decision for Christ, decision to receive grace and forgiveness, Lord, would you call them? Would you draw them? So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.